All right, welcome everybody for our continuation of our study of Mark here. Just by getting us context of where we are. Call last week we, and I, I say this because I've, I've handed out a map here, so I kind of want to get us oriented on what's going on. Uh, recall that um, I think it was last week, the week before, Jesus was in Nazareth, which is actually on our map here that I handed out. It's kind of even below, it's below Tiberias on the left side when we see the, the Sea of Galilee. So there, we know that there's a lot of traveling going on from Capernaum down. Uh, so, and I'll get more into all the traveling that's taken place by Jesus and the disciples and the crowd. So we're talking about Jesus rejected at Nazareth. And right after that, remember we talked about Jesus sending out the 12 apostles where, where they were to go. And then abruptly then through this travels, Mark just puts this uh, brief description of John the Baptist. And recall I told you guys that this is really the longest narrative. It is the longest narrative in Mark that is a snapshot of what happens when, and there's really no mention of Jesus. So when we talked about John the Baptist last time, recall I gave you the history of, of King Herod, Herod Antipas, and then his, quote, wife, Herodias, and what happened. Remember Herodias? This was confusing. Mary's, his half-brother's daughter and the other half-brother's wife. So basically Herodias was married then to both of her uncles. We talked about the mess of all this. And then, of course, we know because of that, then that John the Baptist had spoke against that. And what happens? Herodias has a plan. She wants to kill John. Uh, But King Herod or Herod Antipas doesn't want to. We got into that. But what happens? We have the trick with the daughter who's dancing, this whole thing that goes on, and ultimately which, which led to John the Baptist's head being brought in, not given to King Herod, but given to Salome, the daughter, and then ultimately to Herodias. And then we saw that King Herod was upset. And I talked about he really wasn't upset that John was murdered, right? He's upset that his wife won. So anyways, and Dr. Veltz uh, summarized the section of John Herodias. He says this section of Mark here of, of, of killing John the Baptist was a centerpiece of Mark's gospel because its message that martyrdom strikes those involved in proclaiming and, spread the, and spreading the reign and the rule of God, and then which we'll see, including Jesus and his followers. So kind of a, it's not the center of the book of Mark, but it's kind of in kind of a, new, we're going on to a new phase after this happens. Then we also looked at, after we looked at the death of John the Baptist, we, we turn and you turn your Bibles at Mark 6.30. We see most of the Bibles at the top there said Jesus feeds the 5,000. But that doesn't really start there. There's kind of an interlude even in this. We went over verses 30 through 32 uh, where the, the disciples, remember Jesus had sent out the 12. We talked about that. Now they've come back to Jesus here and feeding the 5,000. And we talked about this. They're kind of have done their tour. Now they're, they've come back and they're with their Lord. Um, it corresponds, like I said, to sending out. Now they're back. We don't know how much time happened. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us that. But they wanted to report back to Jesus what they had. And we can kind of think about what Jesus had given them to do to cast out demons and to preach the gospel in repentance. So we, we can assume that they've done that now. They've come back to their Lord and their master 
And they're telling him everything that took place, right? And then it's at this point then that Jesus wants to take them, the twelve, and take them to a solitary or desolate place so he can be with them. Recall Jesus' popularity everywhere he goes now. Crowds of people are thronging around him. And he wants to take his disciples out. We can see this more intimacy going on with Jesus and the twelve now. But as we're going to see here in Feeding the 5,000, they just can't get away from the crowds, which we'll turn to today. So on that today then, I'd like to, if we can... Get through Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then the next story, and these are awesome stories, right? Most kind of known stories. 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water. And maybe we can get through that today. Before we do, let's uh, open with an invocation in the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, cool. So, if you have your Bible in front of you, let's turn to Mark 6. And I know I read through it last time, but I'd like to read it again just to get us our context, the context. And then what I'm going to do, too, and I hope that's okay, then I'm going to spend a little time just reading the Bible. You guys okay with that? Uh, I want us actually to turn to John, too. Interestingly enough, of course, the feeding of the 5,000, probably one of the most well-known accounts in the Bible, right? But what's very interesting is this is actually the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Um, and each, each one tells it a little differently, although when you compare it, they're um, identical, really. Um, so let's read through here uh, Mark's version. And then I'd like to go to John and to just read this, because John throws in a couple extra kind of details. That as we then go back through Mark, we can kind of think about that. So let's turn here to Mark 6, and we're going to start at verse 33, because this is really... Um, uh, where the feeding of 5,000 takes place. And as you can see, the verse before, now that Jesus is taken, uh, they went in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And just so we can kind of get oriented then, <clears throat> uh, if you can look here. Now, I did a lot of research on this because there's kind of, there's just some debate actually of where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. If you look on your map, you can see over on the right-hand side, which would be the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Now recall that before we've talked before, Jesus has been in this area before on the, on the excuse me, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And recall that's the area of the Gentiles. This is not a Jewish area. And the first time he went into this area, when they went over there, and he, he remember when he found the man with the unclean spirit, which of course we found out which, which was the, the demons, the legion of demons, that took place in this eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the non-Gentile area. Most of the time up to this part, Jesus has been on the, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the uh, Jewish side. So now Jesus, after the twelve have returned, not quite sure where they were we, when, when they returned. It would have been somewhere probably closer to Capernaum, the western side. So now Jesus is taking them to a desolate place. 
Again, some commentators think that somewhere between could be somewhere between Capernaum and Bethsaida. John does mention that when they go uh, to feed the five thousand, it's close to Bethsaida. But some of the this map, I thought a lot of people think it is more actually more on the eastern side. And you can see it where it says feeding of the five thousand. That's the death, desolate side here. So this is now where they're going, the disciples. This the desolate place. And we hear in 33, now many, which is the crowds, saw them, the disciples and Jesus, going and, and they recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, Jesus, answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish and those who had ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, if you wouldn't mind, let's turn to John 6 and just read John's account. Kind of give us a little fuller picture and then we'll come back to Mark. John 6, 1 through 13. And in John, this, this is just fascinating. This is the, the Jesus' bread of life discourse. Because you can see in John, it's John feeds the 5,000, obviously, is the bread. Then you see John does have the little bit on Jesus walking on water. But then Jesus goes into his I'm the bread of life uh, discourse, which actually fits nicely with Jesus feeding the, feeding the 5,000. But we won't get into that. We're not studying John. So just brief. Let me read this, and then we'll go back to Mark. So six, John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain. So there's a kind of different reference, but a desolate, solitary place. And there he sat down with his disciple. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This marks add this. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Of course, a rhetorical question. He said, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as many, much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, so John has a little different stuff, which I'll address as we go through. A little bit more detail than Mark provides. But let's go through Mark. Um, So we start at uh, verse 33. Now they saw them going and recognized them. So what the Greek kind of is, is, and many saw them, which is Jesus, and the disciples going and recognized it. So I think what Mark's saying is they, they actually, the crowd knew what Jesus was doing, namely, he was trying to find a private place on the other side of the lake, and they were going to still follow him. And we see here then in verse 33 that what did all this crowd do? They ran there on foot. I mean, obviously, must not have had a boat to follow, uh, to follow Jesus. But again, I don't think Jesus and the disciples were traveling too far. Um, there is this thought, it could be a long way. So I think that's why most people think either the feeding of the 5,000 was a little closer to the Bethsaida, and that when, when Jesus uh, had met back with his disciples, he could have been north of Capernaum. So we just don't know, but we do know that when the, the, the disciples, they get, they get into the boat, probably just cutting off kind of the north 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 side of the lake. So, so it was able, it enabled these people to follow uh, Jesus, but not quite sure. And they were going from the town, so as they moved, uh, we, we think as they moved from the west up north and to the east, that as this crowd was going through towns, other people probably, um, uh, you know, the crowd would grow as they were following, you know, see kind of a smaller crowd as they go through as they're moving, kind of the crowds gets bigger and the bigger because we know ultimately there's 5,000 men. And recall that when we talk about 5,000 men, that didn't include the women and the children. So we can assume at the one point when Jesus feeds them, it, it could be over 10,000 people. We just don't know, okay? So anyways, we can picture this big crowd following. And then the crowd, though, they do get to the desolate place where, where Jesus, they get there before Jesus and the disciples do, because we see that they ran on foot all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. Um, this obviously was a place where they thought Jesus was going. Now, again, Luke nine ten mentions that the locality of the feeding of the 5,000 was somewhere near Bethsaida, but we know it's not there because after this, Jesus has the disciples get after feeding the 5,000, Jesus has the disciples to get back in the boat to travel to Bethsaida, okay? So we know that they're not in Bethsaida. Um, so somewhere near, uh, but not in that area. And I think probably it's consistent with what we see on the map, maybe not quite down that far. 
Okay, so and then also, if the crowd's moving at the at the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River comes down. But most commentators say that the Jordan was easily crossed um, by foot; they could cross by wading or anything. So that's kind of the scene of where this is all taking place. Everybody got that? It's a little confusing, but all right. So verse thirty-four of them. Jesus then, as they're traveling on on the boat, as they get to the shore, what does Jesus see? 34, he sees, quote, a great crowd. And what is the first thing that happens when Jesus sees this this great crowd? And I'm going to talk about this. So as he sees this multitude gathered, basically his heart melts because he has compassion on them. But I've talked about compassion before. It's, in fact, one of my first sermons I preached here. I love this term. I'm going to say it again. It's going to be my fifth time maybe saying it. So excuse me. But I think it's really cool of what speaks of Jesus' compassion. Because we hear it over and over and over in the Gospels. So compassion comes from the Greek word splachnon or splachnisomai. I've talked about it before. Talked about how uh, President Harris in his book... Um, what is it? It's about uh, mercy. Uh, it says that it's an onomatopoeia. It sounds, it's a word that sounds uh, like it means splat. So actually, splachnon comes from Old Testament. It was when the animals were brought in to be sacrificed, when the priests would cut open the animal, when all the inner parts fell on the floor. It made that splack sound. And that's what splachnon is. It's the inner parts or the inner being. It's actually the heart, lungs, liver, and kidney. So when the Greek uses this term about Jesus, and it's usually always only with Jesus when he has compassion, it's this inward, complete compassion, his heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys, like like the sound of the inner parts in, in this sacrificial system. So you can see how that fits nicely with Jesus' compassion. It's truly inside, but then it's also connected to this Old Testament about the sacrifices, which then we know in the New Testament, the ultimate sacrifice was Jesus. So I love this compassion, this compassion word. But every time we see Jesus have compassion, there's always action that he does after. There's this compassionate mercy and compassion after that we hear that he does. So that's the first thing he does. He has this compassion then. And then this verse also tells us another thing. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Another great Old Testament uh, theme or a motif and we hear it in the Old Testament in Numbers first of all the first time uh, the most significant is in, in Numbers it's 27 verses 15 through 28 this describes remember the selection of Joshua as the successor to Moses remember Moses dies Moses isn't allowed to lead the people into the new into the holy land um, Joshua is. So Joshua is the successor. And in, in Numbers, actually Moses who writes it, even though he dies, he says that, that Joshua is selected so that the people will not be as those without a shepherd. 
So we, this is kind of this first motif of shepherd with Joseph leading the people into the promised land. Um, I think here a lot of the commentators say we the 5,000 people and how this is set up. Uh, Jesus is kind of uh, portrayed as this new Joshua then. And in fact, this is interesting, Jesus' name in the Greek, Jesus, is this Jesus, is how you say it, is, comes from the Old Testament Hebrew, Joshua. So we're kind of seeing Jesus then as a new Joshua, because uh, Joshua has the spirit in himself. We know that Jesus has the spirit in himself. Remember when he was baptized, the, the dove, the Holy Spirit des- descends into him. So Jesus then here, kind of there's this picture of he's seen the, the one who's bringing Israel fully to, their, to the land of Cana, to, their, to the promised land, to their final rest. So there's this kind of a, a Old Testament motif here in feeding the 5,000 and the sheep without a shepherd. Also, we know of many other instances of the sheep-shepherd imagery. Um, and I think what's important here when, this is, when, when Mark and the, this is brought up also, it is kind of a dean on a, on a comment on the Jewish leadership at the time. Uh, they were ineffective as those who are caring for God's people. They're not. They don't have a shepherd. It's a statement that the Jewish leadership at the time have not acted properly. It is somewhat seen possibly as a condemnation of the Jewish leaders. And this is taken actually from Ezekiel. I know I'm throwing a lot of you guys here. Ezekiel 34. uh, And we see in Ezekiel where Yahweh is coming to his people uh, as a shepherd uh, to his people. He personally seeks out a sheep in Ezekiel. And then he will feed them, just like is going on here. He will feed them in rich pastures. And then at which time he will bring judgment upon the wicked shepherds. Here we see then, you know, this kind of imagery of what's going on here is, is Jesus is Yahweh himself who's come to bring his reign and rule to judge these people using this rich imagery of a sheep and shepherd. Also, we can think of Psalm 23, right? Uh, and that's, let's see, it's on page 865. This here. If you want to turn, it's Psalm 23. It's 865 in our study Bible. Psalm 23, a song of David. What does he say? And I want you guys to keep this in your mind as to what's going on here in feeding the 5,000. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Remember that. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. So this other sheep shepherd imagery being applied to Jesus here when he talks about this. Um, And again, who makes... Uh, the sheep lie down in green pasture. As we see here, what, what will Jesus do uh, when he feeds the 5,000? And I'll get that. I'll get to that in a minute. So we can kind of see these rich Old Testament motifs right here off the back with Joshua and the sheep and a shepherd imagery that's being painted by this. And then there'll be one more, which I'll hit here in a minute. So that's kind of the setup on what's going on. 33. 
Um, let's see. So 34. Well, no, that was 34. Excuse me. Also, we see here then, in addition to this, he sees he had compassion on them because they were a sheep without a shepherd. And then what does he do? He does what he always does. He began to teach them many things. Um, we've heard this before. Recall Matt, that was mainly the Jesus, Jesus, what he was doing in addition to his healing and stuff in Mark. We've seen that Jesus is really the main thing he's been doing is teaching. And that's what he's doing here. But interestingly enough, um, reading through the commentaries, there's actually another kind of Old Testament motif going on here. Um, most people think that when Jesus returned and came to this place, it was kind of a mountain. Um, G, uh, and and uh, there's a lot of comparisons to Moses here as well. Um, again, and Jesus is kind of being represented as a Moses figure because we know that Moses teaches the people. Remember in the desert and solitary places. But then also Moses, uh, it goes to Mount Sinai on a mountain, receives the Ten Commandments. So it's this desert mountain motif kind of. We've got this here, desolate place. As Moses was teaching the people of Israel, that's what Jesus is here. So we know that Moses taught his people in the desert. That's all in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then another thing that Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, is Moses says that the Lord will raise up a prophet like him from among the people. You shall hear them. So Jesus, or Moses then is prophesying about Jesus is going to become the ultimate, uh, the ultimate prophet. So a lot of people see a, a kind of a Moses-Jesus connection in this as well, in the solitary places. Um, and again, it's, it's consistent with Jesus' theme of teaching in, in Mark's gospel, spreading the word by proclamation. All right, any questions on that? It's kind of interesting to read all these old, you know, these, the commentaries on this. You can see a lot of Old Testament imagery in feeding the 5,000. Any questions or anybody have anything else to add? No? All right, verse 35. Verse 35 then. What happens? And Jesus teaching there. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. What do we kind of sense here? I think the disciples are getting a little nervous. <laughs> Which is actually unbelievable. All they've seen Jesus do. Again, they're not seeing him as who he is. They're getting nervous. We've got Possibly 10,000 people way out here. There's no McDonald's around at the time. So, you know, the disciples are kind of getting fidgety. It's getting late. We're not in the city. We're in this deserted place and all these people out here. So the disciples feel like they have to remind Jesus. Boy, he sure has forgotten, they think. So there's a little time left. We've got to get these people supplies. They need food. I think they're... They're freaking out, really, freaking out on what's going to happen. You can think about it. I mean, it could, you know, after the day travel and being out there, no food, where are they going to go? I mean, it could be somewhat of a serious thing, no food, nothing to eat. Um, so it's very interesting then what happens then. Uh, well, the, the disciples continue with their nervous. We see in 636. So the disciples tell Jesus, 
man, you need to send these, you need to send them away, go in the surrounding country. They've got to buy themselves something to eat. And the disciples are not understanding why Jesus has kept these people so long. They, they're so nervous about it, they feel like, well, if Jesus isn't going to act, we need to act. So after they're explaining to Jesus, they command Jesus to send them away. I thought that was kind of ironic. Jesus, stop teaching. You don't know what you're doing. Tell them to leave. Leave so they can go find food. And it's just ironic. They're warning Jesus that he's held the people too long. They're not going to be able to get any food. Then verse 37 here, we see, I think this is awesome. This is a, this is a, I don't know if it's a rhetorical question, but Jesus answered them. You give them something to eat. <laughs> All right, why does he say that? And you think it's, a, it, it's an astonishing reply, right? Who He knows the disciples still don't get it. And then he, he, I think you can see this as Jesus has challenged the disciples. Well, if you're so worried about it, get them something to eat. Well, and what, it's kind of interesting when we think about this. Remember in, in 6.8, when Jesus sends out the, the 12, I mean, what does he tell them? He charged them, we see it in, in 6.8. Jesus charged disciples to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bad, no money. So they've already been sent out, got no food, and they come back and report. I mean, we can, we can just, we, can, we, we know that Jesus... Jesus took care of them, right? When they were out, they had food. So they had that experience, right? Went out, came back, they were fine, have no food. But I think it's ironic here then that they, they're now asking Jesus and worried about these people to send them to get food. So I just think it's kind of the irony there. So I think when Jesus asks this question, so you give them something to eat, he's just really leading his disciples to think of his mighty power and to place their reliance on him on his wisdom and his thoughtful care. But still clearly, the disciples, I think they remain in the dark. They just don't get it. And that's why then they say, you see in 37, so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They don't get it. And they ask this, I think it's somewhat sarcastic. Um, they're trying to prove a point. And they say, so the disciples respond to Jesus. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. I think, uh, you know, it's a hopeless proposition. They know that. It's, is this how are they going to give the food? I mean, to be begin with, 200 denarii, at the time, that was over a year's worth of wages, just to think about that. So they're, they're kind of thinking about this economically. But at the same time, even economically, if they had that amount, how, how are they going to get someplace and purchase 10,000 Big Macs and bring them back. <laughs> yeah. So they're thinking there's somewhat of an economic thing to it, but I don't think that's the point. It's just the reality of the situation is that there's really nothing we can do. Even if we had over a year's worth of, you know, wages, 200 denarii, we can't, you know, we can. But, you know, in terms of economically, they knew how much bread costs and they know there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? <laughs> no such thing as a free or a free dinner. All right. So then Jesus, seeing how stubborn they are and really dumb they are, says to them, 
kind of another rhetorical question we see in 638. Jesus says to them, well, how many loaves, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. So really here, Jesus is taking over, right? He knows what's going to happen. He takes over the situation. Uh, I had you, when we read John, we saw a little bit more that, that it was the little boy that had the two loaves and two fish. Now, these loaves, I don't think it means much, but these aren't like big loaves of bread that we're used to thinking of. These, these small barley uh, unleavened cakes, they're like this big. So uh, a loaf of barley bread is what, the, what, what it was. I mean, that's just not enough to feed even one person, really. So a barley loaf, hardly, ha- you know, you can't compete, feed two people probably with what they have. So the disciples respond back, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. I think they're saying back to Jesus, it's not enough, duh. I mean, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's about the 200 denarii. Jesus, I mean, really kind of we can see their skepticism uh, going on with this, which is, again, amazing after all they've seen. Okay, so now Jesus is taken over. He's, he's done with the disciples, okay? So we see in verse 39, what has he had? Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. This is Jesus' place. And on his place, no one who is hungry is ever turned away. Because we know he is the Lord. He is the creator. He is the redeemer of all things. And this is how he works. He sits them down. So then thousands here are what? Asked to get ready to dine. To dine on five loaves of bread and two small fish. So then he commands them to sit down. I see this and the commentators agree with me. It's really as though as Jesus is inviting his guests to recline at his table. Then the green grass, this is awesome. It's again an Old Testament motif, right? What's going on here? The good shepherd makes his sheep lie down in green pasture. It's an allusion to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. So I think it's a great, again, Old Testament motif. But again, here in this place, though, Jesus, who is the shepherd, prepares a table for his people, and there will be a feast. And I'm bringing this up. What does this sound like for us today? There's a lot of Eucharistic Lord's Supper undertones here, and I'll kind of uh, talk more about that briefly. But that's what he does today. He prepares the table for us today. And he has us come forward. And we are, there will be a feast. There is a feast. So we see this here too. There will be a feast. All right. 640. This was very interesting when I read this. I hadn't thought about this before, so I did a lot of reading on it. So what happens? They sat down in groups. And why does Mark say by hundreds and fifties? So again, so it's 5,000 men sit down in these groups and the women and children. So we got to think this is a large. But this was, a, this was kind of an orderly seating Dr. Linsky says the groups were arranged, maybe so it's kind of a grid. So lanes 
were done so there could be a serving kind going on. But this groups is interesting. The Greek word here is parousia. It's kind of like a garden bed. The whole group was arranged like when we plant gardens, maybe in rows. But the significance of that is, Dr. Veltz right, is the Jewish history depicts that when students were studying the Torah, um, they were sitting in this arrangement. It was always done. When the, when the rabbi was there teaching, it was in this very orderly arrangement. So, And this was common phraseology during Judaism at this time, to sit this way. It's the theme, and I think it still supports this Old Testament motif of Jesus, the theme of Jesus as the new Moses. Remember, what Moses was the ultimate teacher, and uh, it, it kind of fits in with that motif. So this, this orderly seating kind of fits in this whole teacher-rabbi uh, when they're studying the Torah. So I thought that was a very interesting take on why Mark would include that here. So now after there's this order going on, as though they were studying the Torah with the rabbi, you've got Jesus here that's getting ready to feed his people at his table. 641. And taking the loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. What a picture, right? These thousands arranged, ready to dine, and only a handful of food to set before him. So Jesus takes the five, these loaf cakes and the two fish. He holds them while a blessing is said. So let me speak about this for a bit. So blessing in the Greek here is eulogio, where we get our word eulogy from, is to speak well of praise. He's speaking a blessing at this time, but also John, and that's why I wanted us to read John on 6.11. Go back to that. But we, it, we can see this blessing, because the, the concept of blessing from the Old Testament really also was to give thanks we see in John 6.11 what Jesus says. Let's see, John 6.11. So what does he say? He says, um, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks. So I think that's consistent with this blessing, this giving thanks. That's what Jesus is doing. He looks into heaven and he gives thanks. Doesn't that sound familiar? Of course it does. Our ears are tuned to hear it. We hear it every Sunday. We hear this. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when we was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it gave it to his disciples. See these Eucharistic tones here. We see this here too. And the significance of this we see here as he did on the Last Supper Whenever Jesus takes bread into his hands, gives thanks and distributes it, we know that big things happen. It happens to us on Sunday during the Lord's Supper. And it's happening here with these 5,000 people. Now, I'm not arguing that this is the Lord's Supper here, because Jesus institutes that on the Passover. But there is Eucharistic and Lord's Supper undertones here. So don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that this is where Jesus institutes the Last Supper. But all the commentators, I'm getting this from our commentators, 
agree about these Eucharistic undertones here. And we can see it, right? It's great stuff. So, very good. Um, And in fact, this is happening on the Passover, which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on the Passover. So look at all these, these similarities here going on. Okay, so after he does this, we get after he's given thanks in 41, then what happens? Amazing. It's what happened with us when we eat too at his table, and they all ate and were satisfied. So you see here, this bread here in this desolate place, when we're talking about Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, isn't it interesting? No one worked for it. It's free, it's gracious bread, it's bread without sweat, it was fish without fishing. Here all the crowd of the 5,000 plus had to do was sit there at Jesus' table on this nice, cool, green grass. The bread was free, and this is all they did was eat. How much? As much as they could. You know, these people come a long way, had probably assumed hadn't eaten all day. They were hungry, and I think we can say 10,000 people. It took a lot of food to feed them. And they were satisfied. They ate as much as they wanted to eat from five little loaves of bread and two fish. And then what happens in verse 43? This is amazing. There was so much left over. They took up what? Twelve baskets full of broken pieces of, of of bread and fish. Interesting, the number 12, all the commentaries agree. 12 is obviously an important number. First thing that we can think of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And we can think of the 12 apostles that are where, with now, there with Jesus. And what happens? 12 baskets full, one for each of the 12 doubting apostles, who are themselves actually the beginning and the foundation of the restoration of Israel, as we see as this goes on. I mean, they don't fully realize it until after Jesus is crucified, raised from the dead, comes back and is with them and then gives them the great commission. But all these steps here. So the number 12 here, I think, is significant. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. The baskets fool. There's a, this, this, plenty of God's people. This is interesting. In, in, in the book of Amos, um, I'm not going to get into it. If you guys want to read it, it's Amos 9, uh, 11 through 15, which actually describes the restoration of Israel. Um, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the hills will flow with sweet wine. It's this overabundance of fullness. This fullness, then, we see this here. It's this really eschatological view, the end times, the end time restoration when Jesus comes back the second time. We've got the fullness brought forward and everything is full. So I think this is uh, kind of being seen here as well in these 12. The 12 tribes of Israel going to bring in the restoration, the 12 apostles. Now we've got this fullness, and this is what Jesus does at the end of time, a fullness, a full eschatological fullness. All's restored. All right, and then 644 here, and those who ate loaves with, 
were 5,000 men. I think that's just a mark recap again is, is that there's a lot of people here. Don't forget that. So we know it's 5,000 men plus women and children here. The study note, I like its, um, we like to end with their kind of the study note, the conclusion. Uh, we we'll read, when a multitude of Jesus' followers have far too little food for all to eat, Jesus multiplies five loaves and two fishes so that all are satisfied. When problems threaten us and needs overwhelm our resources, what, are our, what is our reaction? We turn first to the Lord. We should, as His word makes clear, for He still treats His flock with compassion and more than provides for every need of the body and soul. The compassion talked about the compassion. That's what he does for us today. Compassion. Any thoughts? Anything follow up? Anything I missed? Or anyone challenge me on in this? Feeding the 5,000? Great story. That's why it's included in all four. All right. Why don't we jump a little. Let's see if we can get a little bit into Jesus walking on water here. Um. Of course, we know the story. Focus on Jesus walking on water, and I'm going to spoil it for you. I mean, it further provides, you know, the affirmation that Jesus is Lord, is Yahweh, the true God of Israel, come to be with his people. Okay, so what happens then? Right after, there's like a, there's a paragraph here, but this, this is just going all together, okay, as we see immediately. So right after Jesus, this happens. What happens? I'll read it. Mark 6.45 Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Remember, I, I, we talked about that. So we know that when he fed the 5,000, they weren't in Bethsaida. They were somewhere else. Um, so he gets into the boat. Uh, so he tells his disciples to get in the boat and, and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. See, there's the mountain language there. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, referencing back, I'll talk about that more, but their hearts were hardened. Okay. Um, well, I'm, 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 let's just get right into the text here. So immediately then, I talked about that. This is immediately right after the feeding of the 5,000. They go. He compels his disciples. Okay, so it says immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. The Greek really is he compelled his disciples to get in the boat. So, I mean, the question is, is why does Jesus have to force his disciples to embark? You know, what's going on here? I think it implies that there was a reluctance of the disciples. Um, So the reason is, if real quick, turn to John. Let's look at John gives a little bit more reason. Um, If you turn to John 6, 
And I, I read it before. It's, G, it's Jesus feeding the 5,000. Go to John 6, 14. It's the last two verses of feeding the 5,000. Mark leaves this out. So this is in the context now of why is Jesus having to compel his disciples to get in the boat? They don't want to go. Well, John tells us at the end of Jesus feeding the 5,000. John writes, verse 14, When the people saw the sign, that was when they fed all these people, right? 10,000 people. What do they say? This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now again, this supports my the the, thesis, the Moses motif about Moses talking about Jesus becoming the prophet. These people say that this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. But then this is important. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus again. Uh, withdrew again to the mountain. So that's what's going on here. The disciples are kind of are sucked up into this here. The people saw this as a private. And now those people, the crowd that he just fed, as John tells them, they want to go and take Jesus by force and, and make him become the king. So that's why then, um, you know, the, the 12 here, they, wanted, they would have been delighted to see this plan be carried out. They're, they're like, yeah, let's do it. We want him to be king. All right, so that's why kind of we, we see Mark saying then he compelled his disciples to get in the boat because he needed to get out of there because this wasn't his time to become king, right? This wasn't his time to go back into Jerusalem to become king. We know when he goes into Jerusalem what happens. Remember the Palm Sunday comes riding in, a lowly donkey, but he is the king that's going in. But he, go, he doesn't go into Jerusalem to be king he goes into Jerusalem to die. That's the way he becomes king. But of course, these disciples don't know that. So that's it. That's why that, that Mark's writing him uh, while Jesus uh, compelled his disciples to get in the boat. But as we see here, Jesus doesn't get in the boat because Jesus goes back still and dismisses the crowd. Um, so there's no indication, I don't think, that Jesus was going to go into the boat. He stays back. Then he wants to, uh, Jesus we see in 645, is he wants to send them and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. So that was the disciples' intention then where they were going to go here before we have this storm situation going on. Again, it's on this north side. You can see it on our map. Um, so they are going to go out into the lake, come out, and then go up to Bethsaida. Um, Again, this Bethsaida is still on this eastern side, eastern side of where the Jordan come is. Bethsaida is still in Gentile country. Why does Jesus give Bethsaida as their destination? Um, who knows? Some people think that he was, he, he was wanting to go there. <clears throat> it's, a, again, a new stage of his ministry to the Gentiles. Don't really know because at the end of this, we see that after the storm happens in the next pericope on verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to Gethsemane. So sometime during the time when this storm happens, as opposed to going up to Bethsaida, where Jesus wanted them to go, 
But then we know this was part of his plan, but no one really knows why the plan was changed as they start to set sail up to the north here. This storm comes, and eventually, once Jesus gets with them, they end up going all the way across the other side of the lake. Not sure why, but obviously that must have been in Jesus' plan. Um, we see this, though, as that he was going to go, and then Jesus dismisses the crowd. Again, I think we can see this. Jesus' continued heart for his sheep that have no shepherd. He simply doesn't jump in the boat and leave them and desert them. But he takes, uh, you know, he, he cares for them and is dismissing them. So it seems Jesus is expressing this a farewell to these people. He's just fed. Uh, verse 46. So then after he had taken leave of them, Left, he went up on the mountain to pray. Of course, this isn't the first time we see this. We saw this in Mark, at the beginning of Mark, uh, Mark one thirty-five, where after his baptism, um, his temptation, begins his ministry, then he calls his disciples, then he heals the man with the unclean spirit, then he started to hear many, heal many people, then he preached in Galilee, and then early in the morning, recall, he, he departed and went to the desolate place. There he play, prays. So we, we see this continuing theme. You know, I guess from a human perspective, I mean, we, Jesus is God, but, you know, he's facing challenging times here. He's got a lot of crowds here. His popularity continues to, sur- to surge. But he goes out. Again, to a mountain. I think that mountain kind of solidifies that new Moses motif, which we talked about in, in the feeding of the 5,000. Moses on the mountain. Jesus is retreating to the mountain uh, to pray. Verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So then the, I think this is the second evening that Jesus was in here. Remember the first evening this is when the disciples worried about the 10,000. Jesus feeds them. Now we've got our second evening hymn. The boat's already gone out. Jesus is clearly on the land. And the disciples are out on this Sea of Galilee. That's kind of a contrast, right? The disciples in the midst of the sea while Jesus by himself on the land. And then verse 48. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth hour of the watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I'll cover some of the other stuff here. So clearly, I mean, Jesus, there's there's some dispute on how far they out, whether if we could have seen or this was a divine scene. We're not, no one knows, but... um, Dr. Linsky, those adamant that it was kind of this supernatural sight because at this point it was dark. Uh, the storm was raging. Jesus could see. But we don't know. What did Jesus see? He knew that the disciples were out there, presumably completely off course in their d- direction because they were facing a, a strong headwind. You know, when you sail, you can't go into the wind. So they're, they're off course. Um, and I think we can perceive that they were in real danger. What does Jesus do? So he sees, 
I think we can assume that we, he knows this is happening, but he still is in deep prayer. He knows the situation. And I don't think we can see because he waited until the fourth watch of the night. So I think there was some time. We don't know why. Maybe he let them struggle for a bit to show to show them, as so often he does, who he was and what he, what, that he is, could help them. Um, in the fourth watch of the night, that's usually between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So we know this has been going on for some time. So then it was around this time, sometime after 3 a.m., that Jesus went to help them. And I think at that, this is a good place, because I want to spend a little bit of time on all the rich motif, uh, Old Testament stuff of who walks on water. I know it's a little obvious. And the significance of a sea. There's a lot of cool Old Testament things I'd like to refer back, and that's going to take some time. So why don't, if that's okay with you guys, let's stop here, and we'll, we'll get into Jesus walking on the sea and some Old Testament cool motifs here and what's going on. So with that, um, we're about at time. Thank you, and um, the Lord be with you. Also with you.